1: Org. enjoy hello my name is joe hopkinson and i'm here today with lindsay dodd to discuss her book french children under the allied bombs 1940 to 1945 an oral history um so lindsay it's uh, great to have been invited here to do this interview with you today um how are you doing
0: I'm good, thanks, Joe. Yes, in confinement because of the uh, the coronavirus, but um, getting on with things.
1: Excellent. Um, so uh, perhaps listeners should briefly know about our relationship. My Lindsay is my supervisor. I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Huddersfield, um, working with Lindsay on my project, um, which is also kind of about the history of childhood. Yeah. It's a study yes. of visible minoritized children at school during the 1960s and 1970s in England
0: yeah that's right Joe. that's sort of why I um, asked you to do the interview with me because or the discussion with me today because well I thought you know you're approaching the end of your PhD and hopefully you might be thinking about publishing out of your PhD so to talk about how um, you know how a book and a set of research comes to fruition might just be useful to kind of talk through a little bit so that's sort of why I asked you today um, if you'd like to like to talk to me about this.
1: Excellent it's just great it's great to be involved in in, um, in discussing this sort of thing on this platform um, so should we get started with the actual questions then? Yes please. So, um the everyone's here to listen to uh, you talking about your book today. So could you just please introduce yourself, Tell us a little bit about yourself, including your background as a historian?
0: Sure, yeah, um I'm um, I'm a I work at the University of Huddersfield uh, Huddersfield's a large town in Yorkshire in um, Great Britain. It's somewhere between Manchester and Leeds. That's usually how I describe it. It's a former textiles town. Um, I've been working at the University of Huddersfield in the history department since 2012. Um, My kind of academic trajectory, um, I did a BA in history with French and European studies at the University of Sussex down in Brighton uh, between 96 and 2000. Um, I did my MA straight afterwards at the University of Sussex as well and that was a master's um, the program was called Life History Research, Oral History, and Mass Observation. Uh, finished that in two thousand and one. I ducked out of academia for a fair few years after that, and then um, did my PhD at the University of Reading between two thousand and seven um, and finished up really in
1: two thousand and eleven. Oh wow! So when, when I, I didn't know it was that the timeline was that close. So I started my studies and you were my personal tutor in 2012.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You were my first cohort, really. Oh, wow. I never knew that. No, um, I've done some teaching um, during the PhD, you know, like people normally do um, at Reading. uh, Then straight afterwards, Nottingham and Westminster and other. Yeah, I I was at Leicester for a little while. But yeah, Huddersfield was my first um, proper academic job, really.
1: Um, so you said did you say you started out doing the, the life history kind of stuff? Was that yeah. during your master's degree you'd said?
0: Yeah, it was, yeah.
1: So uh, when did you kind of really start making the move towards kind of focusing on oral history?
0: Yeah, well, um as part of my BA, I was um studying with Rod Kedwood at Sussex. And Rod um is a great expert in the French resistance and France during the Second World War. And when I was doing my um, dissertation for that, it was um, on l'Ecole Nationale des Cadres du riage which is a the national leadership school for youth, which was set up um, under the Vichy French regime. And I became very interested in the arguments that were taking place in the historiography over people uh, who had been at that school and were giving their testimony about what that school had been like and what their experiences had been like and how other historians from the outside who weren't involved with the school, obviously born years later or whatever, were highly, highly critical of um, the nature of oral testimony and it just so happened. So, so that's kind of when where I started getting interested in that conflict between um, oral type histories and archival or document Based histories. And it just so happened that at the University of Sussex at that time, there was a really great master's program called Life History Research, which was run by um, Al Thompson. Alistair Thompson, a wow. great oral historian, and um, Dorothy Sheridan was the other teacher on the on the MA, and she was running the Mass Observation Archive at the University of Sussex at the time. So I went on that program and um, really learned all about how oral history works, um, the theories, the practices, and yeah. So so that was really how I came to oral history as part of my kind of research practice and methodology.
1: So the, uh, the sort of connections between oral history, the history of childhood in France were all, re- all kind of there from quite early on then, I guess.
0: Yeah, I suppose not the history of childhood stuff. Um, even though I'd been working on that leadership school, it was a school for young adults, really. So um, it wasn't children. It was more kind of post uh, school. So young people in their 20s, really. Um, and it was during the course of doing the masters that I got interested in um, a little bit interested in history of education, a little bit like you, um, because the dissertation that I wrote as part of my master's was on working class grammar school girls in Britain during the 1950s, which had been my mother's experience. So she come she'd been born into quite a working class uh, family working class environment where education wasn't really valued particularly. and my nana, had said to her when she was young, what do you need all that education for? You're just going to get married. Um, and so they couldn't really understand why she'd want to go and study in the way that she did. And And she ended up going, passing the 11 plus and going to grammar school. And um, I was interested in what that must be like to feel a bit like a fish out of water as a working class kid in a, in what was a very middle class environment and so as part of my for my um, master's dissertation I interviewed and also gathered written accounts from a number of women who had had that experience of being um, born into working class families but benefiting from post-war changes to education policy in Britain um, which enabled them if they passed 11 plus to go to grammar school girls uh, to go to grammar school and I, I it, it interested me both the class dimension and the gender dimension in in that you know school I was I think I was quite influenced by Bourdieu at the time and and was thinking a lot about how school um, acts to shape Uh, and form and uh, reproduce class and gender structures so I was interested to think about those kinds of issues and I interviewed um, a number of people for that so that was that's where my interest in or or my kind of yeah my my interest in in childhood kind of came from but I I don't think it was anything I'd ever thought about following up with Um, it was just that the P when the PhD came along it kind of fell in my lap a little bit, and um, I followed it through from there, I think.
1: So that's a, it's probably a great moment then to kind of segue into asking you about how, how this piece of research came about.
0: Yeah, so the book that we're talking about, French Children Under the Allied Bombs, was my um, PhD thesis. So I mean, it was um, battered into a different kind of shape in some ways afterwards and polished up and turned into something um, much more readable than a PhD sometimes is. But really, it's it's very strongly based on the research I did for the PhD. The PhD... um, uh, was advertised. So when I saw it, I was I was just I was working in business in in London, and I was I didn't like my job at all. And I just um, happened one day to be in an internet cafe in the days before broadband and yeah. smartphones. And I just, in despair, typed into the keyboard "history job," and um, this PhD scholarship popped up on jobs.ac.uk, and um, it was to study the experiences of French children. Uh, under the Allied bombs in France um during the Second World War. So it wasn't a topic I particularly chose, but I sort of realised that I had exactly the right knowledge and skill set to be able to do that uh, PhD. So I applied and luckily luckily for me got got the um got the scholarship. And it was um part of a much bigger history research project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the AHRC which was called Bombing States and People in Western Europe and it was being run by Richard Overy down at the University of Exeter and it was looking at France, Germany, Britain and Italy and the kind of the the, the whole experience of bombing in those four countries during the Second World War so the French part was being done by my supervisor Andrew Knapp and me um and then there were other scholars working on Italy, Britain and Germany so it was it was quite an unusual experience for a PhD I think to be part of a much bigger project um but it was really great and I absolutely loved it and I had such great supervision and it was out of that really that the book emerged several years after i you know, past the viva and everything. Um, so yeah, that was the that was the basis for the beginning of the the research.
1: So obviously, it was it was um, you know a sort of pre-designed po- project which which ah. you became involved with to some degree. Um, although obviously you made it your own. But uh, why 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 was um, it important for there to be a focus on children? Do you think to study that topic?
0: Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I think bombing bombing has a really particular relationship to children i I think children's experiences of war um, were totally reshaped by the advent of total war and by the advent particularly of air war and uh, air war brings um, offensive warfare right into the heart of the domestic interior so if you think children tend to spend the majority of their time um, in the home or around the home or at school. Um, And when bombing comes on the scene from the early to mid 20th century onwards, that space, those spaces that children occupy are now frontline spaces. And um, I think that very frequently the study of children in war has revolved, and particularly in Anglophone or British literature, around evacuation and around experiences of evacuation. So um, the children are moving away from the bombs, but we we have less knowledge of their experience of being bombed. But we know that even though they were evacuated, they came back. That even though in France, certainly, before they were evacuated, um, they were living in those bomb sites, bomb zones, um for quite a number of years so i think i think it was important to have children involved partly because of the way that total war reshapes that relationship that children have with um with conflict but also children at the time so this was 2007 when i was starting the phd um, they were they they fairly absent from a lot of the historiography on uh France during the Second World War. Um when I say that, people often say, oh, but all the films from that time, children are so important in them. So they're thinking of things like Au revoir les enfants, wow, yeah. a film from 1989, or Jeux interdit from 50, I can't remember, 54, 55, 56, 52. I can't remember the date of the film. Um, or uh, La Combustion, or um, even La Raffle, newer film. Children are very, very present in those uh, representations of war. But I don't think there was a great deal of scholarship. I think things have moved on a fair bit since then, but still not very much. Um, There was a fair amount of scholarship, but still not that much, around Jewish children's experiences in France. There were books were about youth and um, youth um, organisations and certain things around kind of structures of childhood, around education, around children's literature, around family. But nothing really on... I, get, I really struggled to find any scholarship about being a child or, or much scholarship about, you know, children's experiences, children as social actors um children's agency and so on so i think that was important to try and get children back in the picture because they're a huge proportion of society um and if we're excluding them and um colin nettlebeck wrote about this in 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 about 2011 he said As long as primary age children are being excluded from um, historical accounts of this period in France or elsewhere, then we're never going to be getting a complete picture of how a society is affected by um, a war. The other thing that for me was really important is that at the time, 2007, and even today, they're the generation who are still alive. They're the ones that have the memories. um, And the Allied bombing of France has never really been part of French collective memory of the Second World War. And yet it was such a widespread, violent, um, remarkable experience being bombed by your friends, your allies, the people that you hope are going to liberate you. Um, And it just really hadn't been talked about very much. So I thought it was important to get those voices on the record, not just for the sake of history, but also for the sake of kind of Providing some sort of resolution um, or allowing people to feel like they exist in their own nation's history
1: I mean, that's one of the, the uh, For me one of the fascin- fascinating aspects of your book is is how these people are Remembering things that happened to them when they were, they were perhaps too yes. young to fully appreciate them in certain circumstances Yeah, which they've reinterpreted throughout their lives
0: yeah yeah
1: influenced like, constantly constantly by by the sort of formation reformation of, of national memory yeah memory of these events
0: yeah i think so i think um that connection between i i think the thing about when you're working with oral history is of course you're never gonna you're not getting a child's voice you're getting an adult remembering their past and an adult interpreting and adding layers and layers of interpretation unknowable layers of interpretation onto what that experience was so the impression or the image that you're getting of the past is of course um, i hesitate to say distorted because i think that's rather a negative way of viewing it but it's um there's some you know there's, there's all sorts of ways that this version of the past which oral history gives isn't the past and I think that's quite evident but um I yeah definitely that I think some of the things that came out when I was trying to work with the oral histories of childhood were around sensory experience and how sensory experience seems to be um, anchored in memory and then how it's expressed so the, the very experience of bombing itself is a highly sensory, being bombed. You know, it's a, it's a highly sensory experience. And I found that very, very interesting that um, it, it would really only be by collecting these sorts of testimony that I could have come to that the conclusion that the the most important sense involved in when you're being bombed is your hearing. Um, you learn to interpret what the sounds alike uh, in order to know whether you're safe or not and of course part of the reason for that is because our main sensory um you know sight our main sense um if you're in a shelter that is dark you can't see what's going on and so hearing became very very important and that came out really strongly in the memory stories that people told me of the experience of being bombed Um, and I think,
1: one of, yeah, go on, Joe. That, that reflects the sort of things that I remember hearing from my grandparents. You know, they, um, yeah. they were never bombed, but they do remember planes flying over and, and yeah. the um, sounds yeah. of the alarms, uh, the sirens and things like that.
0: Yeah, I remember one woman um, I was interviewing, she did the impression of the bombers. So if you heard... And, and this is, again, you can get this from oral history and you can't get this from other sources. When you heard... You knew that the bomber was loaded with bombs. It was heavy. Whereas when you heard... You, you could understand that the bomber was returning, having dropped its payload somewhere else. Um, so, you know, people did a lot of... Um, vocalizing of the noises that they'd heard uh, which which when you read the book make for you know that the editors of the book were not particularly happy sometimes with the way that I had to express
1: yeah
0: (laughs) you know things like that that people are saying to me when they're talking but that's that's a fabulous resource you know to try and understand Yeah. yeah Um, it's, it's
1: exactly like, like the stories that you hear or read about from mm-hmm. uh, men in the front lines during the First World War. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, and like you said, that these children were in the front lines You know, in in World War One. They talked about the whiz bangs and all of the yeah. they Had names yeah. for all of the different types of shells, didn't they? Yeah.
0: And then, yeah, the auditory senses are so, so important, I think. And that that comes out. The other thing I thought was really interesting that comes out in trying to use oral history in this way is how people rationalise what they think they knew about things, and that gives us some insight into thinking about how and where children gain knowledge from. Um, and I think I've I've gone on to talk about that maybe more in my more recent work. But I think when I look now at, at the French children under the Allied bombs book, certainly um, the chapter that's all about expecting war is about how children understood from the clues and the signs and the evidence that's around them, from bits of chat that they overheard, what war might be like and then how the preparations that were being made for war, such as the carrying of the gas mask, the tape being put up at the windows um, and the presence of bomb shelters, actually gave them even more knowledge or fear or understanding or premonition of what the shape of some of this war might have been um or what what this war was going to look like that's what some of the evidence that that we can get is very impressionistic evidence but i think you you get this sense of a child a child um taking in little bits of how the environment around him or her changes and trying to piece together what that might mean. There was one man um, who I interviewed whose dad was English, Max, and he remembered hearing a lot about the um, Line de Danzig, Line de Danzig, so the Danzig line. Um, but because he had a bit of English language, he understood dan- Danzig, Gdansk, as um, dancing, dancing. <laughs> so he imagined and this is the sort of detail i think is really fascinating in his mind this was a dancing line that was that was being crossed um i i love those details because i think that's where you start to see the the reasoning and rationale for you know the reasoning taking place that enable children to kind of get a grip on the environment around them And for plenty of the people I interviewed, they said either because this was the case or because they don't remember, oh, I didn't pay any attention to it at all. So, you know, one of the things that I always think is brilliant about oral history is the sheer variety of experience you can get at, um, that everyone has a different shade of experience. It's almost like I like to think of it as a deck of cards being fanned out, um, you know, there there are things that are similar. They might be hearts or clubs or spades or diamonds, but there's those tiny variations in them that are experienced being the same uh, and based on the same circumstances, but lived very differently and then remembered very differently later on. So you get that kind of variety coming through, um, which which I'm a big fan of. I think it replicates human life much more accurately than generalisations can do. Um, and yet, yeah, as historians, we're supposed to be making generalizations, which is what makes maybe oral historians sometimes a bit unpopular with mainstream historians. <laughs> as yeah, it's,
1: it's 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 like what we we talk about sometimes. You know, we're trying to kind of evoke things, yeah. as opposed to purpose- yeah. represent them, kind of.
0: Yeah, and I, yeah, definitely. And I think I think the more I do this, the more I realize perhaps ways of doing what I do are more akin to anthropological practices perhaps than historical practices but you know i'm i'm all for messing up the borders and the boundaries i think we live in these disciplinary silos and sub silos um and i think we need to be more flexible about methods and techniques and borrowing from each other because why well it just it just seems a a little bit arbitrary to stick to our own disciplines to me absolutely I like to after my doing oral
1: history. Or oral history seems to be inherently multidisciplinary, yeah. almost, or it it prompts yeah. you to to seek out multidisciplinary outlooks on things.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think you have to, because because of course you're dealing with psychology and you're dealing with um, sociology and anthropology and and well all that jazz. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, back to the book. Yes, the um, book. Let's talk about so, the. Book. There's uh, there's um, it's the research was conducted in France. Yes. there was uh three areas that you were yeah. uh, that you chose that you studied primarily i want to probably butcher the pronunciation of these but lille Brest, and boulogne billancourt
0: yeah yeah so i chose three case studies um because it, it's too much to do the whole thing so there were three case studies one uh was indeed lille lille is an industrial um city in the north of france um which was bombed uh, kind of on and off across 1941, 42, 43, um, because it had various factories uh, situated there, which uh, were being put to use by the Germans. Um, but it was bombed, or, or the stations, very big kind of industrial stations Um in Lille in the suburbs of Lille were bombed really heavily in 1944 so it provided a good case study for that kind of sporadic industrial bombing in the earlier part and then um, the really heavy raids of what was called the transportation plan which aimed um, to destroy the transportation network across northern France so that when the Allies attacked at D-Day Um, uh, the Germans would struggle to get their troops up to meet the um, advance. So that was the transportation plan, and and Lille was useful for that. Brest is um, a naval port in Brittany, and it was bombed from 1940 onwards. Um, The Germans had warships uh, in Dock in, uh, in Brest, and so those were targeted. Um, and then they constructed one of their famous submarine pens um, in the city, in the, in the town of Brest. And um, there were, there were sub pens built all down the western coast of France. And they became a really, really um, important target for the Allies uh, in early 1943, particularly um, when they dropped huge amounts of bombs on those bomb uh, sub pens, the submarine pens, um, to try and um, to try and prevent the loss of Allied shipping, supply shipping that was taking place in the Atlantic. So um, they became a really important target, and those towns, the five Biscay towns. Um, including Brest, were bombed really heavily in 1943. Um, And then Brest was destroyed in a siege in 1944. So um, it had a completely different experience. And Boulogne-Bianco, which um, was the only one you butchered, really, uh, that's um, an industrial suburb of Paris uh, and home to Renault, the Renault factories. Uh, It's it's sort of to the west of Paris where the river Seine loops out and Boulogne-Biancourt, where it's really two towns, Boulogne and Biancourt, uh, which were linked together in the 1920s. But they, they, there were huge areas of that um, district were covered with, with Renault's workshops and factories and 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 all sorts of allied uh factories or factories allied to Renault, i should say yeah. and the germans were using um they were kind of you make yeah they would let's say that the factories were kind of subcontracted out to the germans and they were making military tanks um and so that became that was a really important uh place for the allies Um, It was the first industrial target that they bombed in March 1942. Up until then, they'd only been allowed to bomb military targets. But from March 1942, they began to bomb explicitly industrial targets. Um, And Renault was bombed, the Renault factories in March 1942, then in April 1943, and twice in September 1943. So it wasn't bombed very many times but they were massive raids when they happened. So that, that's why I chose those three case studies because they had, how how you experienced bombing depended on where you lived in France. And so they all that's, had
1: quite dist- different and distinct experiences.
0: Yeah, and they all had different um, regularity. Yeah, and different time, different regularity, but also different uh, chronologies of bombing as well. Some like Brest from 1940, others like some of the Lille suburbs were only bombed for the very first time in 1944 so um you know that the the, the ability to bomb has really changed from 1940 to 1944 in yeah. terms of the technology the accuracy and so on and so forth so um and and the, the, the willingness to bomb hard and heavy is much greater by 1944 as well
1: um so how, how did these um how did your interviewees react to you was um uh, a young English woman coming over and, and asking them about this aspect of, of their, their lives that perhaps they, they, they tried not to think about, I guess. Yeah, I um,
0: I feel like, yeah, so I interviewed 36 people, 12 in each of the three towns, and um, largely people welcomed me very, very warmly. Um, I think partly because these experiences of bombing had always been part of their life, their childhood, their war years, um, in some cases had caused uh, nightmares um, and other kind of traumatic intrusions across the years. So they, they they were a big part of these people's lives. I wouldn't say they tried not to think about them, um, but I don't think people had ever been very interested in them. So I never got the impression that many of the people I'd I interviewed had spoken to their children or their grandchildren very much about this there were only a couple of men particularly who I felt had spoken to their families about it um, and so in the first instance people were just pleased to have someone interested in their lives I think it didn't necessarily matter that I was British or um, or French they were just happy that someone had found that they'd had this experience and that it mattered and that it was important and that it was going to be part of history. Um, there were a few occasions where the Britishness of me did come into play. So, for example, um, sometimes people would say, oh, you bombed us uh, on this date or you came in quite hard then. or So they, they used you, meaning the British, um, when they were referring to the RAF and uh, people would often talk about the anglo-americans so i mean obviously included in that even though i'm not american i am and for a french person i'm an anglo-american um there were other occasions where um where it was a little bit more pointed or more specific there was one man who uh maurice he was called he refused me to record his interview but I spoke to him uh, I was at his flat and we spoke for a long time and he said to me "Um, I think what you're doing is really important because of what the British did they've never shown any humility or apologies or given any apologies for what they did but they destroyed our lives Um, and I think it's really important that you've come here to talk to us about it so in other circumstances, it seemed extremely important that I was British, and this man certainly saw it as me coming somehow to atone for what had happened before, um, wow. which is makes you feel you've got a certain responsibility on your shoulders, um, and that that length of that length of feeling that length. He said to me, "How can you expect for me not to be bitter?" And I completely agree with him. Um, you know, d- d- these people were very, very evidently collateral damage in a bigger game that was being played by the 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 allied uh, the allied forces. And so, yeah, they couldn't necessarily understand why, why, why have you dropped that bomb on our house? Um, the factory's over there. Can't you see? You know, and, and so, so. And there is a big distinction, and I talk about it in the chapter to do with explaining bombing. The the book is structured around. um, The the first section is about um, expecting bombing, so how children understood what might have been coming. Then experiencing bombing, so actually the visceral experience of being under the bombs and then the third part is about explaining bombing so how people have come to that afterwards and uh and i talk a bit about responses to me in that section um and there is quite a big distinction made between how the americans bombed and how the british bombed and the british are typically seen as having bombed in a much more gentlemanly fashion um (laughs) and the Americans rather careless and slapdash. So I talk about that in in chapter, um, uh, well, I can't remember which chapter, in the part three of the book. Um, and there's sort of a bit of a misunderstanding that has occurred, partly because of the different technologies that the British and the Americans had. The Americans had the opportunity, they, they had the technological ability to bomb from much, much higher up. Um, so they didn't have to come in low, their their bomb sites that that targeted and aimed the bombs were much more accurate, supposedly, than the British ones, and the British um, had to come in much lower, and that's interpreted by the people on the ground as the British caring um, about where they dropped their bombs, and the Americans not caring about where they dropped their bombs, but in fact, um, the accuracy, when you look at the the, where the bombs fell it's not that different to be honest so it's a difference in perception rather than reality
1: it's fascinating the when you were saying about the man who uh was yeah. still aggrieved yeah and, and and you know you were saying how you are speaking to adults about their memories of being a child but occasionally in my research I do sort of feel like you actually almost genuinely capture the voice of a child in in those interviews when when they're sort of casting their minds back and it's sort of the childlike logic almost of saying you know why did they bomb my house the factory's over
0: there yeah no there there are certain bits where and I was really while I was doing the research I was really interested in that idea of the voice of the child and was it ever audible you know where and how and if I was going to identify what the voice of the child was how would I go about doing it? And I did, I, I don't know if it ends up in the book, but I know I gave a couple of conference papers about the idea of the voice of the child. And um, partly because Lyudmila Jordanova was very critical of it saying, you can never find the voice of the child. And, and you know, that made me want to find the voice of the child. Um, and I, I did, there were a couple of examples. There's one example where a woman called Sonia is describing her family's experience of the exodus um in 1940 and her, her her memories are so rapid impressionistic darting fleeting glancing there's no explanation it's just series of images and whilst i don't think that's necessarily the voice of the child expressing it i felt like that was what remained of that child's experience without a great deal of interpretation so it felt in the way she expressed it it felt much more raw and um, uninterpreted I suppose yeah so there were some times when I was thinking about that um, and whether or not the voice of the child can be heard but by and large I think no it's you've got to understand that in oral history you've got this moment in the past which is being described and you've got the moment of the interview which is In whatever present you're conducting the interview in and all the time in between and that that multi-temporality so this idea of um, oral history as a multi-temporal activity rather than a diachronic activity it's not just about then and now it's about then now and all the times in between I I deal with that philosophical problem in my new book, really, that I'm working on at the moment. Um, I think when I was writing The French Children Under the Allied Bombs, I was still thinking a lot more about then and now. Um, And I think then and now isn't adequate to understand what's going on in an oral history interview. I think it's multi-temporal. Um, yeah, so, so Then, now,
1: ever since, in between,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's much messier um than then and now. um, but how can we you know think about that that that's what I'm working on at the moment, actually, but that, yes. that,
1: um, brings yeah, brings us to a, a good uh, a good point your um current research or or subsequent research, um yeah. what, what sort of things have you been doing after this this pro- this project on French children under the Allied bombs? Um, how, how have you kind of moved forward?
0: Yeah, so the French children under the Alloy bombs book came out in twenty sixteen, which was great. It was lovely to see it, you know, the see it come out and have a lovely picture on the front, and it's, it's such a nice feeling. Um, but but there were still things that I felt I hadn't adequately um, addressed, and. I was lucky afterwards. I I was involved in two AHRC, that's Arts and Humanities Research Council funded projects, one called Agents of Future Promise, where we were looking at the instrumentalisation of children in politics and culture. And that gave me the opportunity to think. So this wasn't using oral history, the work I did for this. It was using archival sources. Many of which were created by children um, to think about ways in which the Vichy children ways in which the Vichy regime of wartime France instrumentalised children and how children responded to that. So um, I, I wrote an article called "Children's Citizenly Participation in the Nat- National Revolution," um, where I tried to look at the different ways that children uh, engaged with um, the idea of the leader of Marshal Petain, how they engaged with the values of the Vichy regime, and how the gendered uh, politics of the Vichy regime um, were absorbed or rejected by children, and that so that was a lot of work to do with children's agency and trying to unpick um, how we can understand children's involvement in political processes. Uh, and and it led me to think a great deal about how about epistemological problems really to do with studying children and, and childhood in the past, how we can ever know, really, what that child was thinking. Uh, and it, it you know on one hand it's very depressing because you realise you you absolutely can't, and on the other hand it's very liberating because you can't.
1: Yeah.
0: It gives you a lot more range and scope to think. I think it gives you a lot of space. So that was really interesting. Looking at, I looked, for example, at a lot of um, letters that children had written to Marshall Petain, some of which were clearly written in class um, under supervision of their teacher, some of which were really weird and didn't seem at all like they'd um, come from that kind of context. For example, a little boy who wrote to Marshall Petain saying, um, uh, I hope you've got enough green beans. If you don't, we've got a lot, so I can send you some. So, you know, it's a weird thing to write to your um, leader. But I think for that child, he's seeing Pétain as some kind of, you know, the closeness of Marshal Pétain is is really important to him as a father figure, as a grandfather, whatever. But um, so I was kind of exploring those. And there were another set of letters I found in the French National Archives, which were letters written by children to their father's who had volunteered to go and work in Germany. So this was a scheme called the Relève, the Relief, Um, before French citizens were coerced to go and work in Germany. There was a programme to try and encourage them to volunteer. And I looked, it was really interesting to look at children and fathers um, and uh, the kind of way that children thought about their fathers through these letters and the, the kind of tenderness, and feeling of absence and loss and the expression of love. Um, I found that really interesting and it kind of got me involved in thinking much more about emotions in the past and feelings in the past. And then the second AHRC project, um, which came afterwards, was called Disrupted Histories, Recovered Pasts. And I was lucky enough to get some funding to go and do some more oral history recording about children and evacuation, um, which I'd not really, I covered it loosely in the French Children Under the Allied Bombs book. But it seems to me there is so much more um, to say, and there still is, I've I've really only done one case study about children evacuated from Boulogne-Biancourt, the Renault town, to a district, a, a, a region of France called the Creuse, um, a, de- a département, a department called the Creuse. Um, and so I've, I've done about 20 interviews around that experience. Uh, And I was also, the funding allowed for me to travel around loads of different archives in France, listening to all sorts of weird oral histories of children, um, children's experiences. I say weird because they were not formal, often not formal oral histories. Some were, some weren't. They were all sorts of bits and pieces. So I've got this hodgepodge of about 120 interviews now, which I'm analysing, the new book that I'm working on, which I hope will be called Remembering Wartime Childhood's Memory, Feeling and Imagination. Um, And there were two articles that came out of that research about evacuation. One called Family Rupture and Reconfiguration in Wartime France and another one called Children's Wartime Evacuation. So, um, So yeah, I've been following it through really. I'm still on the same themes and ideas, but I'm moving a lot more towards different interpretive and methodological tools around affect and affect theory around the ideas of emotion place and space um, imag- the importance of imagination in communicating about the past and the kind of circulation of feeling and emotion around the past so um, that's that's what i'm working on at the moment
1: Excellent. So uh, ha- um any idea roughly ha- how long we need to wait to expect the uh, new book?
0: <laughs> oh Joe. Uh well I've written it. I've got Tough it this
1: question I've so far, I've is it?
0: I've got it in front of me. Um it just needs editing, footnoting, all of that business. Um I hope 2020, I hope it will come out in 2022. Um but Who knows in this world of coronavirus and um, uncertainty, who knows what's going to happen. But I want to get that book out because I think it's I I really love what I've been working on with it. And um, I think it's got a lot of I think it's going to shake things up a little bit, but in a in a nice way. excellent yeah
1: <laughs> isn't that what we're always kind of trying to do as yeah, yeah, end, I guess
0: exactly not in a not in an aggressive nasty attacking other people's work way but in in trying to bring a new a new way of looking at something I I, I love working with oral history but I fear sometimes the stultification of the methods um that you know it it, it came about as a, an innovative and groundbreaking or iconoclastic sort of methodology. And I feel, and I say this as someone on the editorial board of the journal oral history, but I feel that sometimes it's got a bit stuck in its own methodological um borders. And uh I'd I'd like to see more people looking outside and, and thinking a bit thinking with a bit more creativity and imagination about what memories are um, and, and how historians can use them because I think there's there's still a lot to say and do and particularly in relation to childhood memories
1: absolutely mm-hmm. um, as you, you were talking about the relationship between um, memory and uh, effect in psychology yeah. Um, yeah. I've been really enjoying reading through those um, materials by Sarah Ahmed that you recommend yeah. subject yeah Um, sort of thing you don't really think about is it how emotions are kind of socially constructed and how that affects the way that we feel about things or feel that we should feel about things which incredibly relevant to your work on on the bombing I guess
0: yeah and and, but also to yours on racism and um you know people thinking about racism in their own childhoods and how they seek to interpret it from their present perspectives and You know, these are all topics where there's a lot of emotion attached to um, experience and, you know, objects in the past, people in the past, uh, places in the past. Um, And I think we could be more sensitive in our ways of interpreting how those feelings come into things instead of just thinking about what uh, kinds of feelings we're seeing we can think through the feelings so we can help use the feelings to actually um, help our interpretation. It's an idea um, that I call if, uh, using effective knowledge that we have forms of knowledge which are based on feeling. They're not based on reason. They're based on feeling. Um, and how can we use those as historians much, much better to understand the past and to understand the way that feelings about the past circulate within societies and how they impact on um every aspect of historical research whether it's from what gets funded um, to what particular researchers choose to focus on you know I've had topics great ideas for projects come into my mind and I've thought to myself I do not want to work on that is too sad it's too tragic it would make me unhappy and I don't want that to be my every day even though I think it's an important topic so I think I think there's a you know loads of interesting things to to be said about making better use of our effective capacities as scholars and and hopefully that will come through in my work over the next couple of years
1: so yeah uh, absolutely looking forward to reading more about that in in your next book Um, but just just for the listeners today um where Mm -hmm. can they find french children under the allied bombs
0: Well, it's published by Manchester University Press, so um, you can look on their website or it could well be in your own library. If you search my name, um, you'll get to the University University of Huddersfield repository and there you can find links to others of the articles that we've talked about today. Some are open access some aren't but um i'm i'm happy to talk to people if they wish to contact me about any of the things um that i've discussed today
1: excellent so i think we should probably probably draw yeah. a line under it there
0: i think we should uh, yeah
1: <laughs> we're going on for um, the better part of an hour but yeah. who knows how long this isolation period will last so people exactly.
0: may they be need grateful it to for longer them, don't they
1: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks joe
1: Oh, thank, thanks again for the opportunity to to interview. It's not often that you get to interview your own supervisor about their work so it's true, really nice. True.
0: Thanks Joe. Alright well um, I'll talk to you again soon and thanks to everyone and anyone who's listened to this podcast.
1: And thanks okay. for me. Bye now.
0: Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. SH c-y dot org